Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Claire from Wild Ginger Running, the trail and ultra running YouTube channel. And this is the podcast version of my weekly live chat with an athlete, coach or other running expert. The link to the original film on YouTube is in the show notes. Check out my Instagram and YouTube channel for more training advice, inspiration and gear reviews. Everything is Wild Ginger Running and my blog is wildgingerrunning.co.uk. Support me on Patreon if you enjoy this free advice at patreon.com slash wildgingerrunning. Enjoy this podcast and see you next week for more. I never know when it starts. Good evening, well it started. We're, we're, we're now live, Jen. Good evening and welcome to the Scotney Takeover of Wild Ginger Running. We hope you're well in the last week of February and uh, things are going to start changing in the UK. There's kind of announcement earlier this week of the lockdown easing and uh, hopefully events will start to be happening in a few months time or a few weeks time. You know, it's all kind of... I'm not ready if they're happening in a few weeks time. Well, you better get some, <laughs> some training then, aren't you? Um, but uh, yeah, hopefully there's light at the end of the tunnel and people are feeling a little bit more optimistic uh, if we start coming out of lockdown. But what have we got on tonight? We're not here just to talk about lockdown and our running. <laughs> no, I'm going to learn lots about hydration tonight and everything to do with our training, our racing, our electrolytes and sweat and what what I've been doing wrong and what I should be doing, I think. So we've got Andy Blow. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Um, sports scientist, pretty high level triathlete. Well, I'm going to call you an ex-triathlete because we've just been hearing about how you've come over to just running during lockdown. <laughs> and um, But the founder of Precision Hydration has joined us tonight. Good evening, Andy. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we, we did comment earlier about the uh, the lockdown locks as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you need to describe this for people listening on the podcast after. But yeah, both Marcus and Andy are sporting little, probably longer than usual haircuts. <laughs> yeah, we, we're keeping the country safe, staying out the hairdressers. So doing our bit, saving a few quid as well. Uh, that, that, 
that's it isn't it you know uh, but but i have cut my my son's hair my 15 year old son has let me cut his hair yeah he wouldn't let him cut yours i did so you know um when lockdown ends i might have a, a second career maybe to, to go on but how, how's lockdown been for you and whereabouts are you, are you at the moment I'm in Christchurch in Dorset, so we're in a, a lovely part of the world on the edge of the New Forest. So I think we are probably some of the luckier people when it's come to lockdown because we've got forest and a bit of coast path on our doorstep and a little office garden shed that I'm sat in now to get some peace and quiet. So um, although I don't think anyone's loved it, we I don't think we can complain too hard. It's been it's been all right. Brilliant. So, and and uh, so Jen kind of mentioned there about your change, you know, being an ex-triathlete. Um, so, what have you been doing to keep yourself busy during during lockdown? Well, I've been. Uh, sounds like you guys have got kids as well. My kids are a bit younger than yours. They're um, four and seven. So, I've been doing a bit of um, daddy daycare some of the time because my wife's still working from home as well trying to keep running the business with um, with everyone involved in precision hydration. And then in, if I have had any spare time, I've been getting up early and, and doing a fair bit of running just to just to keep fit and keep ticking over and keep sane, really. Just put, putting in some miles around the local trails. Brilliant. And are you enjoying that kind of shift to just be doing the running? Are you missing the biking and the swimming? In, in the last lockdown, in the summer lockdown, I was riding my gravel bike quite a lot. But I've decided that I've turned into a bit of a fair weather cyclist. So, <laughs> so been, I don't I don't mind getting my, my, my Gore-Tex on and going out running in the rain. So I've been I've just been yeah I have actually been really enjoying it. And I'm going to put the curse on myself and t- touch wood when I'm saying this. But I've had a good streak now of no niggles and injuries, which is what's always disrupted my consistent running in the past. And I've been running for quite a few months now. Uh, I've backed off the pace a little bit and sort of you know just just enjoyed it and and actually it's been it's been really rewarding yeah i've been i've been having a good time brilliant yeah and often sometimes just like you say backing off and you know not always putting that pressure when we go running you know it enables us to get a bit more flow and just to be more in those mindfulness moments as well of appreciating what we're doing so we kind of touched on that you were a triathlete before and but you were quite a high level triathlete when you used to compete weren't you I got up to a decent level. I was I was never sort of worrying anyone who was going to win a uh, you know world championship medal or, or whatnot. But I had top ten finishes in a couple of Ironman races and won my age group at Exeter, which is the off world triathlon world championships. Um, race for Great Britain a couple of times. So I got up to like a, a decent sort of low international level. And I was really fortunate that for a few years I was able to train almost full time kind of between the, the jobs that I was doing and um, you know doing a bit of coaching and other things I was I wouldn't I was never like a hundred percent a full-time athlete but I was as close to it as you could comfortably get really um, you know for as a as an elite amateur and that was brilliant because it enabled me to like go out at full bore and I was able to do all the great things like learn about overtraining firsthand and um, <laughs> the life stuff. lesson yeah all the lessons that you know that stand you in good stead later on <laughs> yeah. and how about precision hydration fitting in was this this some other life lesson that ended up um becoming a more lifetime business 
hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was competing in triathlon, and obviously in triathlon, if you're doing long distance stuff, the the Hawaii Ironman is the one. It's the kind of I guess in ultra running, it's a bit more spread, but it's kind of like the UTMB, you know, of of triathlon, and and it's hot and it's humid, and you know, I ended up going to some qualifying races and doing other events in heat and humidity, and always finding that my performance was terrible as compared with where my fitness level was and where I where my peers were. You know, I always felt that I could do way way better, and. Um, I was always aware that potentially this was to do with sweating because I, I have a big sweat rate. I, I really do sweat quite a lot when I run or cycle or whatever. And I was I was trying to compensate for that by drinking a lot, but it clearly wasn't working because I ended up in the medical tent a few times. I used to get horrific cramps, um, really felt unwell for days after events. And it took me years and a lot of investigation to sort of figure out that not only do I sweat a lot, but I lose loads and loads of salt when I sweat. And this was pointed out to me by a friend of mine who's a doctor. Um, and he he put two and two together, looking at photos of me finishing races covered in salt and then looking at the symptoms that I was getting. And he sort of said to me, look, we should test the amount of electrolytes that you're losing in your sweat because I think you're losing a lot. So I sort of toddled off to a hospital with him and had this sweat test done where they took a sweat sample and measured the electrolyte content. And it sure enough told me that my electrolyte losses were really in the in the top five percent of what you'd expect to see in a normal person and then sort of like coupled with the fact that I was doing long events in the heat and I had a high sweat rate, the, the net amount of sodium and salt that I was losing in a race was massively outweighing what I was taking in in terms of any supplementation and so the doctor Dr. Jutley said to me you know we're going to change this up and you should try taking you know, basically what was, I think, five or six times more salt when I was racing and actually a little bit less fluid because I was maybe overdoing the fluids. And it was like night and day. It was just a complete overnight change. It was such a big difference. I could then basically, once I dialed it in, I could compete in the heat with, I was, I never, I, won't, I wouldn't lie and say I ever sort of like started to love competing in the heat. I was always naturally, you know, I'd be more at home in the cold, but I could. I sort of felt like a level of performance was unlocked, and and that then there's a whole long convoluted story which I won't bore you with now about how that became, you know, a business. But basically, it was just that discovery, and then subsequently working with athletes. I was running a sports science lab. You know, we got into testing sweat of athletes and trying to see if they needed to individualise their hydration plans as well. And you know, we kind of ten years later, here we are, and we're still doing it. So, so were you a triathlete before a sports scientist or were you doing sports science whilst also doing triathlon as well? Well, I went, I went to back university in the late 90s to study sports science. Um, that's what I told my mum and dad. I actually really went to train for triathlon, really. I think, <laughs> you know. So I turned up to my lectures and I, was, and I studied sports science, but I was doing both in parallel. At the time, I was hell-bent on being an athlete. So the studies got as much time as they could get outside of my training, really. <laughs> so the two things came together. What, what I found really interesting, though, and this is not a reflection, I mean, the, the, the course at Bath nowadays has changed a lot from when I did it, and it, was, and, it was, and it was a very good course when I did it, but this was an area which 
just wasn't covered in, in sports science. And I still find now that although there's a bit more awareness of it, it's still a bit of a, a grey area. It's one of those areas that not everyone seems to, you know, study in a great amount of detail, which I think is what the kind of little niche that precision hydration have fallen into. It's what we're it's that gap that we're trying to fill, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Liam Lonsdale has said, said that it's, uh, it's changed his life. Precision uh, hydration has changed my life. Maybe an employee or <laughs> relative. <laughs> I recognise Liam's name. I'm trying to I, I, should probably, I should probably know that as well. Maybe I wrote a cheque to him earlier. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that kind of little kind of £10. If, I, if I could just go back to just some kind of basic questions so we can understand what's actually happening here but because in that explanation of of how it came about you mentioned a few things like electrolytes you were talking about sodium or salt and things so (laughs) why is this important to us and to our performances well on on the physiological level you you your body when you're exercising like hydration can be is an issue um, when you sweat a lot because you lose blood volume. So you, the watery part of your blood, the blood plasma, is really important for giving the blood its volume so it pumps around the body freely so it can go to the skin to cool you down so that you can sweat it out so that it can deliver oxygen to uh, – so that the blood overall can deliver oxygen to the tissues, etc. And so as you sweat, your blood volume decreases and it exercise becomes harder. It's why your heart rate goes up if it's hot and all those kind of things. And – the plasma part of your blood is really salty. It's got a lot of sodium in it. It's part of the extracellular fluid in the body. And when you sweat, you lose some, if not all, of that sodium. Well, actually, you don't lose all of it, but people lose different amounts, but you lose a proportion of the sodium with the fluid. And the, the more of that you lose, the harder it is for the body to maintain blood volume no matter what you're drinking. So fundamentally, it acutely during exercise, the problem that you get is that you get this kind of contraction in blood volume if you're losing a lot of fluid and a lot of salt. And the body finds it really difficult to then rebalance that if, you, if you're not consuming sodium at a reasonable rate to, to match up to your losses. And then the kind of cascade of problems going on there because sodium is so important in the body in terms of nerve transmission and um, fluid balance it can it can cause fluid to shift if you if you've got low sodium in the blood it can cause fluid to shift into other body tissues um, which is probably one of the most relevant things for ultra runners to understand it's hypernatremia it's called where you where you sort of like um, swell up basically and your your brain can swell up and cause it cause you a lot of problems so electrolyte so i don't know if i've explained that brilliantly actually but the loss of sodium along with along with the, the fluid in your sweat basically can be a trigger to a whole cascade of other problems if it if it's severe enough or goes on for long enough yeah yeah like you kind of briefly touched on about doing your your studies the you know there's not a huge amount of kind of either knowledge or kind of textbooks or stuff to go on and it tends to sometimes be either a bit of kind of that kind of bro science or you know your, your mate jeff down the pub he did an ultra marathon and said yeah go drink a liter every hour because that's going to be the best thing and when he did a marathon and um you know the early marathon runners were drinking red wine so maybe you want to glug some red wine on the way around and something like that 
so the knowledge out there isn't always great. So what are you? So are you guys then trying to re-educate people, or, or kind of give people that knowledge then of what they should be doing, and what is the best way? How do we start then thinking about our hydration for like an ultra marathon, a multi-stage race? Or... Yeah, I think you know there's there's a few really good points in there, and definitely one of the first ones is that the information about hydration out there at the moment is either quite loaded or it's quite confusing or it's quite polarizing so you get lots of different very contrasting viewpoints and that was definitely one of the things that we set out to do first of all because we although we a lot of people know us because we make products now we make hydration products for athletes we didn't start out making products we started out consulting with athletes to try and help them to understand their hydration needs as individuals so that was all modeled around the fact that you know, like I said, I, I just had this problem and it, it was a way for me to, to find the solution. And the I think one of the reasons that the information out there is all confusing and polarised is there's been a lot of mismarketing over the years. Like sports drinks have been pushed really, really hard at athletes and sort of they've massively got to the point where they overpromise what they can do, which has then resulted in a, a big kickback against that by people saying, well, hang on a minute, they're not they're not magic. And I would be one of the first people to agree with that. You know, they're not. They, although, what what's magic is is understanding exactly what your body needs, so that you can learn to replace it. Because we we work with athletes, or we have worked with athletes right across the scale, from those who appear to have no problems with hydration whatsoever, who don't really need a lot of help or advice or a lot of supplementation, through to those like myself, where and it sounds like Liam, who is commenting as well you know he has said he's, he's neither an, an employee nor a family member but someone who's unlocked <laughs> new levels of performance thanks to the folks at, at PH. <laughs> okay he's just so a <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> but what we what we've sort of found is that yeah there's these people like Liam and myself where it really really you know doing something fundamentally different with with your electrolyte intake and your hydration intake makes makes a big big difference so that's part of, I think that's part of the problem of where the gap in, in knowledge exists is that as you as you said Marcus you can talk to one person if you talk to Brian down the pub who's like been the guy who got around a marathon without drinking anything because he doesn't sweat much and he ran it the in the year it was eight degrees you know then he's going to give you a totally different perspective to the guy who ran the Honolulu marathon in 32 degrees and he's got a high sweat rate and they've had to drink a litre an hour of salt water to get around you know there's that so it's it's a people love a one size fits all or a sound bite answer, especially these days because it's got to fit into a, a tweet or a you know a tagline on an Instagram post or something like that. And we as we got further into this journey, we've realised that you know it is about a big mission of ours is to educate, it's to produce information to help people understand that look there's there are. I don't like saying there's no right and wrong answers with hydration because there are. There are some answers that are fundamentally wrong especially and there's some that probably are universally right but they're few. But the majority of them are just really individual. You know, It's like understanding your your individual situation, what your body needs and, and then learning to, to give your body that. Um, if you can do that, and I think that's what most elite athletes are really good at eventually by either by trial and error or just by stumbling on it lucky in the first place they figure it out and they make it work um but other people aren't so lucky and we're in the place of trying to okay shortcut you to a a better understanding so then you can do a little bit of trial and error in a more constrained way 
and get a better outcome. I mean, I'm guessing it's a bit like with you guys with coaching. You know, people can, anyone can train themselves to run a marathon or an ultra or something like that. But are you going to get are you going to get it about right first time if you've got no background knowledge? So perhaps not. Perhaps you might benefit from some education and advice. Yeah, yeah and I think also it's that one size doesn't fit all as well. So, so if I if I'm interested in learning what I need to perform well in my races. How do I know that? What happens if I come to you and ask you for advice? I think there's, there's different ways. If, if you want a really quick bit of advice and we're not available, we've got a little calculator on our website where you can punch in a few details about your racing, your training, how much you sweat, whether you're a cramper or not. And, and we, it gives you a, we've got an algorithm, a reasonably sophisticated algorithm these days that gives you a, an email back which kind of starts to break it down for you and then moving on from that if the next level is since we've been in lockdown for 12 months we've been doing a lot of one-to-one video calls so anyone can book a one-to-one video call with myself or one of the team at, at ph to to like really ask some individual questions and talk you through it and then if you want to geek out and take it to the ultimate level you can actually come and see us or go to one of the places where we offer a sweat test, which is where we can take a sweat sample, analyze the electrolyte composition, and do all of those other things, like sit down and talk with you about what you're doing, look at your sweat rate, look at any past history you've had with you know, different products, with different experiences, and kind of put a more bespoke idea together. None of, none of which necessarily means it will be an excessively complicated output at the end, but it's just a case of like, you know, gathering as much information as we can to intelligently guide you in the right direction. And in terms of the kind of products that I'd be given, are you talking about something that I put in water while I'm training? Is it before I'm training? Is it after I'm training to replenish? What do you offer in terms of that? Yeah, it could be any of those things, really. It's often, you know, we often find the best way to take electrolytes in when you're training and competing is either mixed into a drink already because that makes a lot of sense because then as long as you mix them to the to the right strength we make drinks of different strengths of electrolytes which is a quite a unique thing in the industry so the main strengths that we do is 500 milligrams of sodium a liter a thousand or 1500 and as long as you put the, the packet or the tablet in the right amount of water in half a liter you get something that's mixed to the right strength so that's kind of the optimum way of doing it because then you know you're getting it almost exactly right you can also use capsules and those kind of things which are are probably really familiar to ultra runners because you have to carry them in a lot of longer and hotter races and they can be really good as well as long as you understand how much electrolyte and specifically how much sodium you're getting in a capsule you can then chase that down with some water and take that on and and then i think the other thing is and you touched on it with the comment about before one of the biggest things about hydration in general especially with training is like the most important thing is actually not what you drink while you're training or it's, it's showing up hydrated in the first place. And that comes through a combination of like good daily habits, making sure that you're not forgetting about hydration and just drinking tea and coffee all day and then suddenly necking a bottle of water two minutes before you head out the door. Which we've all <laughs> Did you see me earlier? <laughs> <laughs> but we, but we, all, we all do, you know, do it. You know, it, it's about just sort of thinking ahead and making sure you're staying reasonably well hydrated throughout the day. And then if you are doing something big and really 
like a, a big race. I mean, there's a there's a really good bit of research came out a year or two ago when they looked um, a guy called Stavros Kavoras, who's a, a researcher from the US, but he, he's um, originally from Greece. He went to the Spartathon in Greece and took blood samples from runners at the start and found that 10% of them were already overhydrated. So they they'd got a slight case of hyponatremia stood on the start line because his feeling was that this was because in the education before the race they were being pushed to drink a lot and they were over drinking and I think that's very common before ultra races in particular because we are I've done some very long races in some hot conditions and every day before the race you're worried about getting dehydrated so you're necking back extra water and if you're an athlete and we're all a bit OCD you know you do uh, so you have an extra bottle don't you and sometimes you maybe have two extra bottles and that's not always a good thing and so we've there's actually a, a blog that's one of the most well-read blogs on our website which is called how to start hydrated and it talks about the idea that actually you know good day-to-day habits but then before a race you're better off taking a smaller amount of a very strong electrolyte drink in the immediate build-up because that helps to keep your blood sodium levels up it keeps your blood volume topped up but it doesn't just flush electrolytes through your body it doesn't just make you wee all the time and that can be a really good tactic so we do a strong product which is kind of good for that and conversely after exercise if you do get quite dehydrated after a race that may not be a huge issue because you've probably got several days or weeks to recover but if you're doing a multi-day race or if you're just in a really hard training session and you're going to back that up with another big session the next day you can recover a bit more quickly if you do a similar thing so you take a really strong electrolyte drink in the hours after a race you'll you'll absorb more of that fluid pee less of it out you kind of normalize your body a bit more quickly so it's all just like little things like that that you there are only small tweaks to what most people do but they can make quite a big difference yeah that's an interesting saying about um kind of pre-race but on the kind of training runs is it worth then also having that kind of electrolyte drink like the night before or the morning so if you've got like a long sunday run planned um, and, but also then does it matter on the time of year because you know, l- last week we were up to our eyeballs in snow in the Peak District to minus six um, and I don't think I sweated much on, on my yeah. run but then hopefully in the summer we will have kind of 20 degrees and it will be better. To, is it worth then having that electrolyte drink even in training and will that then also help the body to, to adapt? So when we talked to Rini we were talking about training the gut for, yeah. for racing, you know, doing that in training as well, would it help the body to adapt into that kind of rhythm and getting used to that electrolyte being in there? Yeah, I reckon, so going back to your point about the weather, I would say that's like massively critical because if it is hot, this stuff matters 10 times more than if it's cold. In the cold, you can get away with with a lot more um, sort of just, you know, they, drinking to thirst is like the, the common term for for it meaning just listening to your body drinking when you're thirsty because your sweat rate is probably low enough that you know if it's cold you will you will naturally compensate for what you're losing when it gets hot and especially when it gets hot and humid sometimes it can it can be more beneficial to take a slightly more proactive and pre-planned approach and that's when loading up i'm i'm a fan of having a a preload drink the night before a race as well as the morning of there's less there's less scientific evidence of the benefit of it the night before um, because in theory if you take in quite a bit extra sodium fluid then you probably will just wee a lot of it out but for me it's more about the insurance policy of like 
catching up from the, the days before when you might have been traveling or whatever, just, just making sure. So I'll do that. And then you have this final dose, you know, an hour or so before you race to top up. And although I think it's, it's less, so if I didn't catch the episode with really talking about training the gut, but my understanding of training the gut is largely that you can really upregulate the kind of receptors in the gut that absorb carbohydrate and things. And so you can have a substantial effect on that. I don't think the same is true for hydration or not to the same extent or there's certainly not as much research around that but what I do what I'm a big believer in is that you know kind of practicing things and making sure that they work in big simulation training sessions and whatnot before a race is, is really important in, the, in exactly the same way that you that you hopefully wouldn't rock out with a new pair of shoes on race day you know and you, <laughs> you wouldn't do uh, that you know, in UTMB uh, would you <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say the only time I've, I think I've done it, I have done it before. It's been when I've been doing shoe tests for magazines back in the, when I used to do some shit. And then you would sometimes have to do that sort of thing. But it was always a bit of a roll of the dice. But with with like taking a preload the night before, one on the morning before a, a big race or whatever, Not only, uh, sorry, a big training session, not only do you kind of ensure that that, it works for you. It's not going to make you feel sick or it's not going to make you, you know, there's going to be no unintended side effects. It kind of just gets you used to the ritual and the psychology of it and also hopefully hydrates you better for that session. So I don't, I don't think there's a massive training effect of it. The only, the only caveat I would say to that is that we work a bit with professional cycling teams and talking to a lot of the riders and some of the nutritionists that work with them they do reckon that over a period of years they can sometimes see guys able to drink more and more on long hot stages in races and some of that sort of like learned and practiced but some of it might be physiological adaptation as well you know basically they they just become better at it and so that but that wouldn't be in it in you know, sort of incitement, say to people, look, try drinking lots more regularly, you'll be able to absorb more. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think you, with drinking, you've got to bear in mind that it's very possible to not drink enough, but it's equally possible to drink too much. So you want to keep it in that sort of happy medium area. Yeah, which is yeah, quite which, an interesting point there, because you get that kind of, sometimes you hear from people, oh, you've got to drink to first, or, you know, you've got, you've got to drink a, a litre an hour. So somebody kind of came to you for some sweat testing and you kind of did the analysis and kind of you, you need X, Y, and Z kind of in your, in your water to keep the sodium levels up. Do you also advise like a drinking strategy? Because we all, as coaches, we, you know, we, we, had, we have our kind of advice and part of that is just through, like you say, as an elite athlete, you learn from experience what works and what doesn't work and then kind of reading things like Tim Noakes Waterlogged. A uh, fascinating book, typical mm-hmm. kind of Tim Noakes, full of loads of anecdotes as well. But it, from your perspective, as somebody who you know has done all that research and advising people what they need to be drinking, is it best to drink to first, or best to kind of drink a certain amount every hour or every five, ten minutes, fifteen, twenty minutes? Yeah, that's that's like a huge question. It's a really good <laughs> one. It's starting with the Noakes point, which a lot of people will have maybe heard of or read Waterlogged and. Pe- I read Waterlogged when it came out in 2013, which was like a year after, a year or two after I started doing precision hydration and thought, well, there's, there's like the ultimate anti-book for what, what we're doing, basically. <laughs> but then the deeper, and, and to be fair, I've, I've, I've read it and reread it and absorbed it. And it's, and it's, it's a really important book because it's, it's done the world of good for 
educating people around hypernatremia, the fact that overdrinking is a problem, and all these things that I would 100, 150% agree with. It's like re- really important stuff. But as you say, it kind of does the Tim Nose thing where it takes it to the logical extreme, and he's like, well, all you need to do is drink water when you're thirsty. You don't need to supplement sodium. There's some fantastic quotes in the book, like one of them where he says, you know, you might find um, you, you would you would never find an ultra runner with sweat sodium more than 70 millimoles per liter because that person would have to take in an inordinate amount of salt to get through a race. And then I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I exist. We've tested a lot of other people who exist, and do you know what's true? We have to take an inordinate amount of salt in when we race. So it's there's this point at which, but, but to go back to the thirst piece, like yeah, I think a lot of the time, especially if it's cold, I think if it's cold or cooler weather, I think if you're an experienced athlete, and I think if it's anything less than a couple of hours, then you, drinking to thirst most of the time is going to be more than adequate. As long as the, the caveat being, as long as you start hydrated, you've got to start. In, a, in good shape um, you go beyond that they start races or training sessions start to get longer or you've got back-to-back days if the temperature starts to climb if your sweat rate is higher or if you're a novice or you just don't have a lot of experience of, of monitoring your body then sometimes having a more prescriptive approach to what you might drink can be a good idea and the important thing about that is you don't have to go completely from one end to the other you don't have to go from I'm only going to drink to thirst to I'm going to follow a plan which is exactly 852 milliliters an hour. You could, you can basically say to yourself, and this is what I now do nowadays. It's like I have a feel for what the weather's going to be like, the distance, how long I think it's going to take me. I'll go. This feels to me like a half liter an hour kind of day. So if I'm out for two hours, I'll take a liter with me, and I'll anticipate that it would be a good idea to drink most of that. But I'll totally almost then go onto autopilot of drinking how I feel. And it's the same, I would I would liken it to pacing and using watches and things. You know, I can go out now and smash my, my local loop and without, if you taped over my watch, I'd probably be able to tell you within plus or minus five or ten seconds a mile what pace I'm running at. But if you did that with a novice, they wouldn't have a clue and they wouldn't know how hard to go out, you know, to sustain. So it's, it's, there's not an easy answer to that question other than to say I think the longer, hotter races bigger sweat rates and less experience all points towards the fact that prescriptive hydration plan is a, is more of a good idea right through to on the other end of the spectrum you know you're going out you're doing something shorter it's cooler you've got more experience all of those good things you don't need a plan you're just going to drink if you feel like it or you you won't so and and any of us can move between those sort of those um those points based on what we're doing because i know that you're hoping to do the the mds marcus you know which is like pretty tough on the hydration front but and it's multi-day and all those sort of things but then we'd counterbalance that against the fact that you've got a ton of experience of doing really long ultra stuff and you know how to listen to your body and all the rest of it so would you need like a really detailed plan? Maybe not, but would you? Would I think that it'd be a good idea for you to go into each day with an idea of how much sodium and how much fluid might be a good idea to take? I would say yes, because the important thing about that is if it starts to unravel, if, it's, if things start to go wrong, if you can do a mental audit of the last three or four hours and go, ah, I've only drank 300 mils an hour when I thought I was going to need seven or 800, then you know immediately there's a, potential fix there of 
getting more fluids in. Whereas if you if you thought you were gonna if you're feeling lousy and you thought you should be drinking 700 mils an hour, but you've been drinking 1.2 liters an hour, putting more fluid in is not going to help that problem, or it's unlikely to, by the sound of it. So, I think it's it's just about having a putting numbers behind that feel factor that elite athletes have is really useful because then it gets you in the right ballpark for what you what you might want to be taking in and we so we call it like guardrails so with with an athlete that we're, that's come to us to prepare for something pretty intense we'd want to put guardrails for how much sodium how much fluid that they're, they're aiming for an hour and then but then a little bit let them off the leash on the day to say go with how you feel to an extent does that make sense yeah yeah definitely and, and so we kind of so in an ultra marathon sense if you're doing like a 10 12 hour or a, even a multi-day race and maybe you like we're talking at the beginning about starting hydrated you know kind of maybe drinking plenty the night before and the first maybe hour hour and a half we don't don't feel thirsty but we kind of think well maybe i should drink but we don't what, what's the detrimental effect on the performance going to be? Is, is there going to be, if I'm starting really hydrated and I don't maybe drink for an hour and a half, am I going to notice that later on? Am I, or is that what I've already got me going to get me through till I start feeling thirsty? Yeah, that's an interesting example because I, I reckon my advice to most people in longer races, especially if the races are going to be hotter, is to perhaps drink a, a little bit ahead of thirst, a little bit more to a schedule early on because it is pretty easy to go out and feel great for the first two hours and then not realize quite how far behind you've got. So some some people do, some people <coughs> do it. They will kind of you know go off quite hard and sort of see how they feel and maybe the maybe the the nature of the race dictates that they're not going to drink as much early on because it's tactical and all that sort of stuff and then they can catch up later. But generally, long races seem to benefit from like a more of a strategic approach early on because it's easier otherwise it's easy to get carried away and it could bite you in the backside later on i've always found ultras really interesting because sometimes they start in the cold you know in the morning and then they're kind of if they're somewhere hot they can really go for a really hot patch in the period of the, in the day but then you might go back into the cold again and so you might even need to adjust your approach throughout the day because you know that you need to get to 11 12 o'clock midday you know in a good state of hydration because you're going to get fried for three or four hours but then you can afford to be a bit more easy going with it later on because it's cooling down and it's also it's reading all those cues in your body like how many times do you normally pee on a long run because if you like peeing way more than normal maybe you're taking a bit too much but if you haven't peed for four or five hours is that like a sign that you've not drunk enough maybe it is you have to kind of know your own body for that in terms of just drinking on like races and things, if if I kind of have an idea of how much I want to drink an hour, is there a difference between sipping that slowly through the hour or just having it all in one go? Is there a one that we could favour over the other? There has been a bit of research on that. And I think for absorption, it's better to drink it in large amounts because you stretch the stomach a little bit. And then you empty it empties so because the, the way the digestion of fluids works is obviously down the hatch into the stomach, into the gut, and through the gut that there it permeates into the bloodstream. And if you can exit the fluid from the stomach faster into the gut, theoretically you can drive a bit more absorption into the into the bloodstream more quickly. But I reckon the the trade off is especially for runners is that can make you feel quite uncomfortable because you're obviously a bit more bloated and. 
sometimes you know what it's like when you're running the best time to to drink might be on a slow very gentle incline because you know you've got a steep downhill coming up where you're not going to want to try and drink or conversely you might be going up a really steep slope which is like causing you to breathe too hard to drink so often what actually trumps the physiology of it is just the practical like when does it make sense to drink you might shotgun a bottle just before you go into an aid station because you know this is the last chance to fill up your bottles for yeah. three hours yeah. so i'd say it's i wouldn't I wouldn't say to people that they probably need to worry about that. Just do what's comfortable. And in terms of, I mean, I tend to do really long races, so there's a lot of food involved as well. Do I need to be... Sorry. That was the dog <laughs> sighing. Jean has come and commented wondering what the heavy breathing was. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's funny as we mentioned ultra a couple of times, there was this heavy sigh. It wasn't either me or Jen sighing at each other going, Oh, She's talking about, talking about food again. Talking about <laughs> oh, yeah, so I shut up the beagle, sat between us, doing so, his usual kind of snoring. I was going to ask if what I'm eating could have an impact, either like particularly if it's something with that's salty or got salt added to it. Do I need to take that into account when I'm looking at what I'm drinking as well? Yeah, I think eating salty food is a really good idea in ultra races because it. <laughs> the sensation and taste of salt on your taste buds is, is really important. If salty food tastes really good, it's a good sign that your body's maybe starting to run a bit low on sodium. So maybe cramming some more salt in. I I remember doing the, um, the Transalpine race a few years ago where it's like the seven day, I think it's seven or eight days through the Alps and, and they had the little potatoes with salt that you could roll the potatoes and salt at the aid stations, which were just brilliant because you could then take as much or as little as you wanted. And I was using that at the time just to kind of gauge a little bit, how am I feeling? Well, if they taste fantastic, then I'll have a few more of them. And if they, if the salt starts to taste all horrible, then you probably know you've had enough. So I think the salt content and also with ultras, it's like the dryness of the food as well. You know, if you're eating, because you, you often move away from like liquid calories and move away from sports gels and that kind of stuff. And if you're eating like sandwiches and bread and things, then you, you probably do want something literally to wash them down with and, and, and help absorption and make it a bit more comfortable. But I think the salt content one is, is important. It's, I think it's also why soups and things like that are really important and really useful in ultra races, long ones, through the night, because hot drinks make you, they're a great morale booster as well. Um, and, you know, and the salty, it, if they taste, again, if they taste really good, it's probably doing you some good. So get some more on it. When I, I did the, it wasn't an ultra run, but I did the devices to Westminster canoe race, which is goes through the night and it's at Easter time. So it can be pretty cold. And we drank lots of tea with sugar in it. We drank quite a bit of soup at the, at the stopping points, just cause it's, an, it's the like, it's, it's a good liquid calories. Like underrated as sports nutrition, really, for a lot of people. Yeah, and sports nutrition, we've just had a comment from somebody called Orange Goblin who's recommending, I think, anchovy sandwiches. No, that's a no from me on my races. <laughs> there was a fun down, but I mean, talking about soups, when first time I did the Spine Challenger, 
that that was kind of what I lived off on was bowls oh, of Oh yeah, you were allowed support. On uh, <laughs> that's when I was allowed fans and support crews for doing the spine challenge and was yeah. met every kind no, of not the proper way of doing it. Ten miles, yeah, not like I did have, have some to, yeah, yeah chicken soup or something for you at that. Chicken then. soup, <laughs> yeah, with, with also rice in it. But it was but that was partly because the people had been telling me about that who had done UTMB and had been drinking chicken soup on like UTMB and even when I did UTMB there was like vegetable soup. I remember middle of the night like, having some. It worked. Soup. You won. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Got to call my uh, I don't think I want No, that. I meant in the, oh, the spine. spine. I was going to say, I didn't, didn't work very well at UTMB. No, was, no, you were beyond help there. Uh, a, a shocker. So we was talking there about um, the kind of carbohydrates in the food. And, and you talked about kind of carbohydrate, you know, that drinks as well. So where does the, the pH drinks kind of the sodium drinks because if you go into some sports shops or if you're online um, looking at some kind of different nutrition strategies and there's kind of loads of different you know mountain fuel tailwind is kind of the kind of the two ultra marathon fuels a lot of people tend to go with it's a bit like apple and windows almost isn't it you know which people go with but then there's high five sis talk um you know isotonic carbohydrate it's, it's almost like a minefield isn't it so where does ph come in and do you, would you kind of favour one over the other for a kind of a rate? Obviously, no, if you're going to favour pH. Um, yeah. <laughs> of course. Let's stick with pH. where pH fits in. <laughs> Sorry for those other kind of marketing as other brand products as well. I would, I would say it's like selecting selecting your sports nutrition or your nutrition and hydration is, is just basically like picking the right tool for the job. And to do that, you've got to understand what what the job is that you're trying to do and sports drinks you can kind of break down very very oversimplified but you can break them down into three different types you've got hypotonic drinks which are very light they have a low osmolality so they're very quickly absorbed into the bloodstream um they've got the osmolality is kind of like a measure a, a simple way of saying it is almost like the thickness of the drink you know they're very very light they're more watery and so they're absorbed through the gut very fast and they they are definitely the best for hydrating so most of the drinks that we make are hypotonic so that means very low calorie um, or relatively low calorie high electrolytes in the case of ours because that is obviously to counteract sweat losses and hy- hypertonic drinks are definitely the best when hydration is the priority when when you're sweating a lot when you're trying to hydrate you want hypotonic drinks so that's why you'll find in hot weather people will sometimes take a normal sports drink which we would call an isotonic one which is like a lucasade or a gatorade or an SIS, a typical sis or whatever and sort of dilute them down because in the in the heat they start to taste too syrupy and too sugary and too strong because they are at that point they're not going to be absorbed as quickly and your body knows that so that's why in the in the heat they taste better when you cut them in half the problem with doing that is that you dilute the electrolytes down so they become just more like just weak basically so i would say hypotonic drinks are the number one for hydration so high electrolytes low calories we do two we do one with no calories which is like a tablet and we do one which is a packet of powder which has a small amount of sugar in it. And that sugar is there to aid absorption of the fluids and the electrolytes in the gut. Because you, you put a little bit of glucose in with a drink and it shuttles more fluid through the gut more quickly to hydrate you better. It's how diorolite works and those kind of medical rehydration solutions. Then um, 
Can you hear the dog? Yeah, sorry. It's <laughs> like moved right in front of us, so the mic's like sat right in front. <laughs> then you've got isotonic drinks, which are like the next thickness up, and they're like the traditional sport drinks. So, Lucas Aid, Gatorade, Powerade, lots and lots of the normal ones that are about 6 to 8% carbohydrate solution. So, they're like a similar thickness to your blood. They deliver a reasonable amount of carbohydrates. So, you'd normally get about 30, 35 grams of carbohydrates in a half litre serving. And they're absorbed, they're the like jack of all trades sports drink that a decent if you are running around playing football for 90 minutes or doing a, a half marathon or something, they're, they're not a bad shout. And then going beyond that, you've got the kind of fueling type drinks, so hypertonic. So these things are like a lot thicker than blood. So they're actually more, although they're liquid, they're more of a fuel than a hydrator. And, it, and if you're getting, if you're not hydrating very well alongside them, they can actually do the opposite so you can swallow them down and then in the gut you have to pull fluid from your bloodstream into the gut to dilute them further to then absorb the calories so it's just understanding like none of them are inherently better or worse than each other because if you need lots of calories a hypertonic drink a hypertonic solution is a good thing but if you need lots of fluids and electrolytes you need a hypotonic one so the only confusion really is that when people, because it's a liquid, people think it's a drink, it's going to hydrate me. It's only going to hydrate you really well if it's hypotonic. I mean, we're, we're actually working on a, we've got our hypotonic drinks. We're working on a more of an isotonic. It'll be very slightly hypotonic, I think, um, drink to deliver a lot more energy at the moment because we're working increasingly with marathon runners and people who are doing slightly shorter, if you like, not, not ultra, but endurance events who want a liquid fuel but it's got a lot of electrolytes in it still and it's quite light on the stomach so trying to work on something which is more of a halfway house for that yeah because i mean it is so easy to get drinks horribly wrong um i've got the classic story <laughs> when i did the my first ever gb vest cue the in, ultra vomiting story <laughs> in, in gibraltar yeah well i went from i was living in scotland at the time went out to gibraltar in 2008 and it was super warm no 2010 it was super warm and so i put more kind of hypertonic drinks hypertonic yeah into so i had more sugar in my drinks and yeah around about kind of 50k i took a gel on and i just did this amazing projectile vomiting like everything it just there was no osmosis process happening um and it was like something out of a little britain character was unbelievable and that what came out but then my body went into complete shutdown and uh, ultimately ended up in the back of an ambulance um and and it was the story because people do they take gels they'll mix an energy gel with an isotonic sports drink not mixing it in the bottle but like one after the other yeah that's just a massive amount of sugar all together yeah and it was just panicking as well because of the heat you know it really was just you know is in november not been training in the heat in the uk um scared of cramping so i just kind of yeah i just suddenly went completely overboard which really i should have maybe just gone no 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 less is more in this situation but it's so easily done i think that's often a lot of times when talking to you know ultramarathon runners who are maybe new to the sport or you know get sucked into trying a new product you know it's one of the common things we hear about is stomach shutting you know this phrase my stomach shut down um and it's finding ways around that and often that is yeah because people are drinking too much of a sugary drink aren't they and they're not getting uh the sodium in there then to kind of help 
break break it down to, to pull it through I, I used to find that if I was feeling bloated if I put a salt tablet or two into my system that could help clear the backlog sometimes if I had that was more an excess of fluid probably rather than an excess of sugar but it would make me feel a lot better really really quickly yeah Rena McGregor mentioned this as well when we interviewed her um, in January she was talking about how salt tabs are great at kind of bringing that kind of stomach down and settling. I mean, one of the other popular drinks in ultra marathons we tend to see as well, be interested to get your thoughts on is, is Coke, Coca-Cola. Um, and even myself, I've kind of consumed fair amounts of it in, in races. Is that, is that a good fuel to be having or should I be kind of leaving that definitely to nearly the end, end of the race? I don't think there's many ultra endurance athletes who haven't used it sometime you kind of know when it's time when that's what your body wants and needs i mean coke is about 10 or 12 percent carbohydrates so to on the scale of things like hypertonic hypotonic would be two or three percent carbohydrate normally um isotonic six or eight percent and then coke is like 10 or 12 percent carbohydrate which just because it just has that much more sugar in it but when when you get to that point i think Coke always tastes good when you're sort of a little, when you're predominantly getting glycogen depleted. So when you're not getting enough, when your liver glycogen is getting low and your blood glucose levels are dropping and that sort of thing, and it, you, you're sort of in that zone of like feeling a bit mentally foggy and stuff like the, the, the sugar, a little bit of caffeine, and in a liquid format, it's absorbed so quickly within 10 minutes it can turn your race around. So I'd say, what I would say is it's probably not a great strategy to be taking it like all the time you know in a race it's, it's like there, there will be stories I remember doing an Ironman once where I kind of couldn't stomach much on the run and I basically stumbled around on flat Coca-Cola and didn't do too badly and that was that was kind of an eye-opener in some ways but yeah, that was more of out of necessity rather than thinking that was a great idea but yeah I think it's a totally good idea to use you'll often see riders in the Tour de France on the late in long stages if they grab anything they'll grab a can of coke from the spectator you know and down that because that sugar hit is really powerful is it worth though then mixing that with some salt I putting I, I think I mean I was in the on the Ironman marathon I would often take salt tablets and wash them down with little cups of coke from the aid station so yeah that that then gives you a bit more of a optimum mix Cool. And, and I think it's maybe worth, we're, we're kind of getting close to, to half past seven, but I think there's one there's one area we maybe haven't yet kind of gone near, which I think it would be quite interesting to get your thoughts on. And it's a quite contentious subject regarding kind of sodium and hydration. Um, but that wonderful thing, muscle cramps. Yeah. Um, so if I get muscle cramps in a race, is that because I've not got enough sodium or is it because I've not? on the right amount of training or I've not trained my muscle fibres is it neuromuscular or is it kind of sodium which one should I, I be I think it's I think it's both or could be both it could be, <laughs> could be either so it's like a politician answer for that one there's, there's definitely cases that's another one of these polarising subjects where people can't seem to get along on this one but there's there was a massive trend many years ago to, to like blaming cramps on dehydration and electrolyte depletion in particular and then there's been this shift more recently towards saying well there's plenty of cases where electrolyte imbalance isn't happening and someone's still cramping so it can't be that but rather than it can't be that I would say there's we've seen enough and I so I've got I've got my own biases here you know when I raced and when I whenever I got um, sodium depleted I would get horrible muscle cramps and I still do now if that happens to me 
but that's relatively easily remedied by taking enough sodium in when I'm exercising and I can keep the cramps at bay. It's still, I still think I'm a more cramp-prone person than many, but that, that sorting that side of it seems to work. And we've got, literally over the last 10 years, we have got countless stories of, of people who have written into us and sort of just basically so grateful for getting on top of this problem of cramping. We literally at the moment probably get an email a day about that. But and we do this thing. We we got so into it at one point. We do a cramp survey every year of a lot of our customers. So we do all these questions about cramping, and um, it's not a scientific study, but it's got the weight of numbers behind it. And we reckon that every year between seventy and eighty percent of people that have tried taking really strong electrolytes seem to find that if they've had cramping issues, it's either made them significantly better or the issues have gone away. So it's not a panacea, it's not like everybody all the time, but there seems to be quite a lot of anecdotal evidence that it works. But then it doesn't answer the question like, what about these other poor two or three people out of ten where it doesn't seem to work? And the theory there is that if, you, if you're overstressing the muscles, if you're causing muscular damage, if your pacing is not good, if you're doing lots of eccentric work, running downhills, that kind of thing, you can cause muscle cramps in other ways. And I totally agree that that's the case as well. If I get on the, the watt bike behind me and the seat's a bit too low and I haven't been on there for a while, I can get cramp in my hip flexors quite easily if I'm trying to push a big gear. Because I'm just asking my muscles to do something that they're, they're not used to. Same as the, the triathlete cramps where you're pushing off the wall in swimming and those kind of things. You point your toes and your foot cramps or your calf cramps. We see a lot of that and it's it's often not something you can pin on electrolytes. So I think it's a, it's a bit of both. But you, you're dead right that it's, um, it's a topic that people can't seem to agree on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry to kind of throw you that. That you know, I'm surprised when nobody's asked us that question yet about about cramping because it's it's such a common theme in in ultramarathons. And I know people have had to pull out of an ultramarathon because of like cramping. And um, he 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 is it? How do you pronounce it? Hugh Brussington, who's done Dragons Back and has done some TV programs. Um, he was telling me about some really bad cramps. And then a mountaineer who had really bad all over body cramps when he tried doing the Welsh three thousands one time. And I was just um, yeah in stitches that you can have all over body cramps from <laughs> running too hard. But. <laughs> Yeah, what, I would say, what I would say to anyone who's had cramping problems, though, is that the if you if you try taking extra sodium, and we've got a blog on our website all about cramp, which kind of gives you a bit of a protocol to follow. There's almost sort of no downside risk to trying it and seeing if it works and helps. And that would be my only sort of anyone who sort of is, if you like, is a believer in the neuromuscular theory of cramping. All I would say is don't let those beliefs get in the way of trying. A different approach if you hit problems because the worst thing that can happen is that you were right and I'm an idiot and it, it doesn't work for you you know but it doesn't really cost much and it doesn't really put you at any risk so yeah it's kind of yeah. like, that's what we it's, it's why our out the gates recommendation to people is to try that strategy see if it helps because if it doesn't you go looking elsewhere and I've just got a question we've kind of talked a little bit about elite level performance and also the kind of desert multi-stage but who who would benefit from kind of getting in touch with you guys and getting a more bespoke program for hydration would it be anybody that's running would it be somebody that's doing kind of races in summer only i, I would say 
it's anyone who's doing ultra distance stuff, especially in in the heat, and certainly either if it's like their first foray into it or they're inexperienced, so they'd like to get ahead of the curve and not just learn by making mistakes and learn by experience. Not that I'm against learning by experience at all. I think it's a really valuable part of it, but you know, we could maybe offer some insight early on that might save you some pain. Um, I think then going the other way is people who've had repeated problems either in the heat or people who just are chronic crampers or people who would for whatever reason put issues down to hydration nutrition you know if they if if that's where your races are coming unstuck if you're fit and trained and tapered and everything when you turn up but persistently seem to be like getting it wrong from a, a a nutrition and hydration point of view then i would hope that we can have a look at that situation and sort of help you out but i don't think it's i wouldn't want to over oversell what we do and say look just because you run you need to have a sweat test and take loads of electrolytes so it's like it's pretty case by case and it's probably those people on the more serious end not necessarily faster but you know investing more out there for longer doing things in the heat and anyone with a history of problems so, so if someone who had that kind of persistent stomach issues in a race, they could come to you and you would kind of help them look at their whole nutrition strategy as well and that kind of maybe a bit of dieting as well or that kind of diet during the race as no, well? We, we kind of try to stay in our lane in the respect that we're not like um, Rini or people like that. We have a network and Rini is one of the people that we occasionally you know, talk to or would refer athletes to for more holistic things. So... Um, I, I would happily, I've sat down and a lot of the team have sat down with enough athletes to look at the basics of a, a fueling and hydration plan for events. And what we often find is that, that really by addressing the basics, you can make a lot of progress with, with most people. You know, often it doesn't require really sophisticatedly getting into their their entire diet because we're not qualified and we're not that's not what, what we do so we would be like a first pass you know looking at we have this thing that <coughs> excuse me there's kind of three priorities when you're doing an endurance event you need to get enough fluids in the right amount of fluids in roughly you need to get about the right amount of sodium in and you need the right amount of um, carbohydrate grams per hour roughly and so the first thing we do is triage that and look at, are you kind of in the ballpark for those? How are you consuming those? What rate? What kind of things are you using? Just to rule out that there's anything like way out of whack. And then there's a, we're a bunch of people with you know some qualifications and a bit of experience, but we would then, if, if it eludes us at that point, we would kind of signpost you off to, to someone more qualified if you want the full you know, look at your nutrition because I think it's important not to, you know, like I say, not to stray out of your, your lane when it comes to that. Yeah, and so obviously we're hoping to come out of lockdown or things getting back to normal kind of in April and then May, June. But if somebody's like got, I mean, MDS has now moved to October, so people have got a bit more time to train and maybe train in a bit of a the kind of a summer heat as well. So if someone was listening to this and going, actually, this is maybe something I need to investigate, I need to kind of maybe get onto this and I can start practicing somewhere. Are you able to do, I think you talked about doing stuff on Zoom, was it earlier? Or um, are people able to have consultations and do some of the sweat tests even during lockdown? Yeah, we, we're not doing many actual physical sweat tests right now at the moment. I mean, we're recording this on the 24th with February, yeah, at the end of February. <laughs> <laughs> 2021. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> just getting my head in the game. Um, but <laughs> we're, we're, so right now it's a bit tricky, but I think I can see over the next few weeks and months it's obviously going to open up, and we'll be we'll be back doing loads of meeting up with people, doing testing and that kind of thing. In the meantime, and, and probably even in the in the future, we'll, we're doing lots of one to one video calls, so you can book those directly through our website. Or if you can't find the booking link or just want to do it old school, just email us at hello at precisionhydration.com and talk to us. You know, um, we'll we'll fit you in. And uh, that's probably the best way. The other thing is, if you're wanting to do a sweat test and you're based around, well, around the world, anywhere, um, you can go to our website and look up where your nearest sweat test center is. So it's in the footer of the website. We've got people all over America. We've got people in Australia. We've got a lot of people in the UK, in Europe, um, in the Middle East now as well. So you can, you know, you can look up a, a sweat test, a pH sweat test place, and, and get yourself um, booked in with someone when they're. Because you know, I know that different people in different parts of the world are more open than we are maybe at the moment. Okay, that okay. would actually be like a perfect place to finish, but I still have some more questions. Sorry, <laughs> just about the sweat test. Is that something that lasts, like I have this sweat test, this reading, and that's me in every circumstance? Or is your sweat test something that could change whether that's as you get older as I hit the menopause as I'm getting fitter is there anything that does change that largely it's a kind of, it's a one-time reading we measure the okay. sodium content of your sweat which is relatively stable in an individual so then there are exceptions but they're few who might need more than one sweat test but generally you have a sweat test and you kind of get your number and and we decide we can help you decide then whether you're low losing a low medium or high or a very high amount of salt in your sweat and then your sweat rate will obviously change dramatically based on fitness based on the environment workouts or clothing all those sort of things but this the sodium reading in your sweat is kind of a one-time deal for most people so it makes it quite an easy test to do sorry sorry i really snoring badly at the moment between us we can't <laughs> Is it affected? Is that sodium level ever affected by? I know we're kind of running out of time, but is it ever affected by the amount of salt you eat? So if you're somebody who maybe is prone to um, eating like maybe Seabrook crisps lots, um, there's a little plug there. Try to get as much of it, but or or you're somebody who puts a lot of kind of salt on their on their food. uh, Does that affect your? Because I mean, I you know again, this is that horrible bro science. You know, I've I've heard from Brian down the pub before that. Um, you know, if you have too much salt, you just sweat it out, and so that's why some people have, are heavy sweaters or have that kind of salt marked around their hats and, and on their t-shirts. Is that is Brian talking complete and absolute utter nonsense? No, I think, I think Brian's at the extreme. Brian's onto something because <laughs> when when I've seen studies where they sodium restrict people going the other way, if you yeah. sodium restrict, then eventually it interestingly you start to pee out less sodium immediately when you stop mm-hmm. eating sodium because the primary way that you control the level of sodium in your body is through your kidneys so you urinate out excess sodium basically and then when you stop eating sodium within a few hours you stop peeing out sodium because the body goes hang on a minute we've got to conserve this scarce resource sweating takes a few days and then eventually it down regulates as well but very few people ever sodium deplete, so we don't often see that. On the other side, 
excess sodium, I think it's kind of similar. Like at first, you just start weighing out extra sodium, and it, from what we've seen, it doesn't affect the sodium in your in your sweat very much. We had a guy in Boulder in Colorado a couple of years ago who was adamant that um, if he ate more salt, he would sweat more salt. So he had a sweat test with us. And then he proceeded to eat loads of salt and he drank like some really concentrated whole salt thing to it and then came back and had another sweat test and sure enough the sweat sodium was exactly the same. Wow. Beforehand. <laughs> and I've seen that sort of thing a number of times because I think at the extreme, I think if you went from very, you know, relatively low salt to persistently really high salt for a long period of time, I can't imagine it's not feasible that the salt level in your sweat might climb a little bit. But the majority of it is you're going to your body's going to pee it out rather than sweat it out. So it's probably a little bit more bro science than than real science to say that, that uh, for most people your sweat sodium is going to be pretty stable given a and what I would call a normal range of lifestyle inputs. And so it's more kind of like gene based. Yeah. From you know your, what your DNA is made up and that's the. Oh, wow, that's yeah. really... Yeah, So, because I was kind of wondering how you could kind of, I don't know, test me in a lab in Sheffield and know what I needed for MDS in a desert, but I guess you're just extrapolating that because it's stable. Yeah, we're just trying to... We're essentially... We always use this analogy, which is that if you were you're going you're coming to see us about a drink but if you're coming to us about a t-shirt we just want to figure out whether you're basically going to be a small medium large or extra large you know and you're we're not trying to sort of make something totally precise for you it's just helping us it's one factor that helps define what your global sweat sodium losses are going to look like we can assume that i'm sure and in the next few years there's going to be patches and stuff available that we will be able to stick one probably on someone running the MDS and see what their sweat saving losses are. And I'm sure there'll be there'll be fluctuations. But at the moment, the best the best to the best of our knowledge, you know, you kind of if I went and did MDS, I lose about one point eight grams of sodium per litre of sweat. And I'm pretty sure if you tested me throughout the MDS it's gonna be within a few percent of that throughout. So that's that's kind of good enough. Brilliant. Excellent. Wow, uh, yeah, we could keep chatting. <laughs> I know, I can. <laughs> but we, uh, we must let you get back to your... <laughs> the dog's gone. The dog's was like, I'm not interested in this. <laughs> He's kind of used to it for many years now. I'm getting dragged to races or just hearing us over the kitchen table just talking about races on the sofa. But thank you so much for um, coming on this evening. It's been absolutely so enlightening and um, I've learned so much. And even over the years, you know, I've been doing ultramarathons now for kind of kind of nearly 14 years <laughs> and uh, every day we've, like night before we've just lugged loads of pints of water pints of water <laughs> and I've sat drinking peppermint tea before on the way to the start of a race thinking this is going to set on my stomach and, I mean I'm not somebody who's ever kind of suffered a lot with stomach issues other than that time at my first ever world championships 100k um but yeah, it, it's it's interesting to kind of keep an eye on that that sodium. And you're very kindly also offering our listeners a, a discount code, aren't you, as well? 
Um, yeah. So if people are watching this live now on YouTube or watching it on YouTube or listening to us on a podcast out for a run, if you head to the show notes, uh, there's a discount code so you can head over to Precision Hydration and uh, get 15% yeah. off the first order. I better check my notes out. <laughs> <laughs> said the wrong amount. I'm pretty sure that's right. <laughs> so so that, that hopefully that will kind of encourage people to kind of yeah head over to your website, maybe try some of the products and then maybe get in touch. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for coming yeah, on thank you. Uh, this evening. And if anybody has any questions, they can kind of post them down below. Maybe we can feed them over to you guys yeah, at some point. I just realised that I didn't get a chance to ask all Simon's questions about beer. <laughs> that's a nice well, there, 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 I think we'll leave that there, one. <laughs> there, there, there was a bit I've heard about one or two bottles the night before. Um, but I assume that was more water than, than beer, maybe. Um, <laughs> so beer before, after and during. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the first Olympic marathon in London, the guy was drinking red wine, so... Um, you know, and, yeah. and uh, I know quite a few. There's the beer mark race, isn't there? As well, where you got to drink lots of beer. But anyway, thank you so much, uh, Andy, for joining us. And stay safe. And uh, hopefully, we'll see you when we get out of this lockdown and actually meet up and do some proper yeah. testing as well. Thank you very much. Um, there we go. Excellent. Well, that was kind of yeah, so amazing. I've kind of learned so much there. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode I hope it's been kind of geeky enough you've kind of got some new thoughts as well maybe going to try something like we mentioned in in the you know in the interview if you are going to try stuff try it in training reach out to these guys you know don't go doing it in the middle of a desert on a week before the race yeah you know would we (laughs) well that's another story we can tell people isn't it but thank you so much for joining us even who have we got on next week as we head into March oh gosh you put me on the spot there Uh, there (laughs) I think it's Joe Meek you've got Joe Meek amazing ultra runner from kind of down in Cornwall so Joe's going to be joining us talking about the FKT she did last summer and kind of it's definite well it's that kind of southwest anyway look this is too live um that kind of southwest part of, of the uk where i used to kind of live so anyway we'll be chatting to joe next week so i hope you can join us and if you have enjoyed being with us this evening make sure you click on subscribe um so you get all the updates what's happening on the youtube channel and if you've been out for a run we hope you've had a good run you hope you had a good time listening to us chatting about hydration this evening stay safe and Bye guys. we'll see you next week bye now Hi, it's Claire here. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. These live chats take place every Wednesday evening at 6.30pm UK time on World Ginger Running YouTube channel. And the link is in the show notes. I just wanted to let you know that you can find this and loads more advice and inspiration and gear tests all about trail and ultra running on my YouTube channel, Wild Ginger Running. There are training tips, advice from elite athletes, top coaches, nutritious recipes, key exercises, injury prevention information, and tons of trail kit reviewed from running packs to poles, waterproofs to head torches, GPS watches, and shoes, 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 and did I mention shoes? I've been going for a few years now, so there's a huge archive of content to help you out with your trail and ultra running. To quickly and easily find the information you need, simply type your query into the Google search box and then write wild ginger running after it. Then Google will show you whatever blog posts or films I have on that topic. Give it a try. And if you appreciate listening and all the information I share on YouTube, you're also very welcome to support me on Patreon, which gets you some additional excellent perks and the chance to win some awesome prizes.
For as little as the price of a cup of coffee every month, patrons get discounts, extra films, access to the exclusive Facebook and Strava groups, the chance to ask questions to every live chat guest, plus automatic entry into my monthly competition to win £400 worth of trail and ultra running gear. There are only about 150 patrons, so the odds on a win are way better than the lottery. Interested? Find me at patreon.com slash wildgingerrunning. Thanks for listening, guys. Have fun, enjoy your run, and I'll see you on the trails. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 